This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. My guest this week is singer-songwriter Juliana Hatfield. Juliana Hatfield is a singer-songwriter based in Massachusetts. She was a member of the Lemonheads in the early 90s, as well as bands like Blake Babies in the late 80s and Some Girls in the early noughts. She's made albums with Matthew Kors from Nada Surf and Paul Westerberg from The Replacements. She's also released around 20 albums under her own name, sometimes as a Juliana Hatfield 3. Although a prolific songwriter, in recent years she occasionally releases an album of covers by a specific artist. Her latest one, Juliana Hatfield Sings ELO, follows her albums of songs by Olivia Newton-John and The Police. Being a big ELO fan myself, it seemed like a great time to talk with her. She's a fascinating character. She had a particularly rough time in the press in the 90s, and her experience of working with a major label has clearly left its scars. Stick with this one. After a lot of ELO geek talk, we go deep. It was genuinely one of my favourite conversations I've had for the show. Sometimes you have a guest where you feel like you're really chasing down some kind of epiphany. I'd love to know what you guys think. Find me on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast and on X at Signals Podcast. And please recommend the show to your friends. I really do appreciate it. Here's my conversation, Juliana. Hi. Hi. Sorry, I'm a couple of minutes late. It's not a problem. Great. How are you? I'm okay. Can you hear me okay? I can. Oh, yeah. I like your t-shirt. I see your t-shirt. I wore it especially for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Did you see that in concert? Yeah, it's weird because um, obviously it felt for a long time like I, I wouldn't because... Yeah, they, you know, yeah, they were. It was over. Seventy, yeah. Um, and so I'd kind of ruled out seeing them, and then suddenly one day they got announced as playing a thing in Hyde Park and for Radio Two over here, and I, I like couldn't just couldn't believe it. I remember like jumping up and down in my kitchen because I couldn't believe it was it was happening. <laughs> but I've seen them like five times now or something. Um, wow. Did you did you get to see them? Never, I've never have, never. Uh, if he comes around again or even near near me, I will definitely go to see that for sure. It's funny that I they were just kind of out of my life for decades, you yeah. know, until until I started working on this album, I wasn't having a ton of contact with the music i mean i mean i did make an album of random cover songs in about i remember like 2008 or something i I don't remember probably later but there was i put a version of sweet as the night a different version on that album nice so you know and every once in a while i would kind of like here's an elo song and i think that's still great you know but i never was they were not really in my consciousness too much until i started working on this album so i wasn't even really like there you know the fact that they were he was touring 
wasn't even on my radar at all at the time. Didn't even know about the existence of the Zoom album until I started working on this album. That kind of thing. They were just like not not in my head. I think for me, I, I liked them so much when I was really young. Like when I was about yeah. when I was about ten years old, I remember doing like a show and tell at my school with like my ELO vinyl collection. Oh, that's so cool! Was, which was ridiculously well, it wasn't cool at all. But I mean, in I, hindsight, it's but, like how great it's so great, you know, that you did that. But then I think yeah, sort of teenage years, I lost. I didn't kind of continue to be that interested, and then rediscovered them as an adult and found I still love them. Yeah, me too. I just think I, I rediscovered them fully a bit later than you did you know after the touring started happening again um in the new millennium have you ever met jeff lynn no no me neither me neither yeah he feels slightly more you know he's he's in the hills of la somewhere and yeah with ton, with like a million platinum gold records on the wall this gigantic studio but I mean, never saying that. I've pulled off some crazy, like I had like Stuart Copeland came on and David Duchovny came on and um, yeah. I'm a huge Genesis fan. I've had Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford and you never know. But yeah, right. Jeff Jeff feels kind of untouchable. But, yeah. But you know, he also seems like he's probably a pretty down to earth guy. Yeah. I also, I also wonder how much, in the nice possible, how much of substance you'd get out of talking yeah, to him. Right, he's so used to just kind of distilling what he says down, you know, for public usage. The way he kind of distilled his image to sunglasses in the way, it's kind of genius, really. It is. Um, Yeah. So your... Your ELO album again. The the song the song choices you mentioned Zoom already. Like when I saw the track list, even I stumbled on ordinary world i was like what is ordinary and i i own i do own zoom um right i'm one of the three people that own zoom but um, <laughs> yeah even i was like i don't remember that title oh. do you know all the catalog or was you just kind of sort of almost flicking through albums and trying to see if anything caught your ear or did you sort of did you get into Zoom and I was not familiar with all of the albums and I never really owned anything by them except for the Xanadu soundtrack, which kind of doesn't count. And that because it's not a really an ELO album. And and then It's half of one. It's half an ELO out of, album. Right. Out of the out of the out of the blue. Yeah. And um that's kind of all I ever really had. It was for me they were just they were more of a singles thing and they were just like this ubiquitous presence from my childhood you know and then um and then just like realizing later all the other things he was doing like producing tom petty like great how what how great sounding that stuff was and and so yeah i had to do some research when i was making this album because i I didn't want to only do the ubiquitous hits from the 70s that i knew i wanted to I just I just wanted to see what was going on currently with him, if anything. And I discovered that yes, there was a lot going on. And I that song, "Ordinary World," I think it's just like so beautiful and so beautifully recorded. And I really identify with, you know, what what it's saying, and um, just like relating to my personal life. And um, also, I discovered you know stuff from the early '80s, like. 
you know, secret messages I took from then. I had never heard secret messages. Although it has that, you know, the 80s drums and sounds, it's, I I love the song. It's great. Yeah, so I had to do, I had to go and I was really doing a lot of research, which meant listening to a lot of ELO that I had never heard. So ma- mainly stuff from, well, everything that wasn't the 70s, really. I had to go. And even I hadn't heard the early, early stuff. I had never heard the first album. Right, yeah. Um, so I had, I had to listen to that. I had to. I got to. I discovered a lot of ELO during this process. There's some cool stuff on the fringes, like yes. t- Time and El Dorado are probably my two favorites. Um, oh, yeah. Time's great. But Time's really good. Secret Messages is great. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah. And there's, um, it was originally, you probably know this, it was originally supposed to be a double. And he, um, they finally, a few years back, released a double album version of it. Um, it was still missing one track that was supposed to be on there, but there, there is um, a, a kind of almost complete <laughs> vinyl version of it that came out um, a couple of years ago, which has got some some of the stuff that was left off it was like really good as well. Oh, I didn't. I gotta hear that. I didn't know about that. See, I still don't know. I'm still not a total completist. I don't know everything. Um, like I did. I feel like when I did my Police covers album, I knew everything. There's only five albums, isn't there? So. Yeah, there's not as much stuff. And it's like a few albums, a few singles, and then Sting One Solo. So it's easier. But the three artists you've picked to cover, again, from my like childhood, I was a massive Police fan. So I was buying Police albums from, like we call them boot sales in the UK, where people throw a load of their stuff in their car and like go to yeah. a field and like set it on a table. Yeah. Um, and I, I, was, I, I was, you know, I bought Regatta de Blank when I was about eight years old or something. And um, yeah. So, and I had a couple of Olivia Newton John albums. I wasn't massive into her, but yeah, so look, but ELO, Olivia Newton John, Police, all serious like things from my childhood. So I find it fascinating that yeah. those three. I mean, me too. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, I was, I think I was more emotionally and deeply connected to Olivia Newton John and also to the police. And uh, whereas ELO was more of a, overall more of an enigma to me like I didn't when I was young I wasn't identifying with the character of Jeff Lynn I didn't know his name when I was a kid I just knew the songs and they were kind of spooky you know like um fire on high I was terrified oh, me yeah. when I was a child when it would come on the radio I'd be like "Ooh, this is a, a scary song but I was fascinated and I never knew like you know I didn't know Jeff Lynn's name then I didn't know any of their names yeah. It's the way that I knew Stuart Copeland, Andy Summers, and Sting, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you see the police reunion tour, like, I don't know, 2007 or whatever? No, but I saw Sting play about a month ago. My friend, my oldest friend in the world, with whom I went to see the police a couple of times in, on the Synchronicity Tour in 1983, she bought tickets, a few tickets to the Sting concert in Boston, and <clears throat> I went with her. I already know that because you're on the um, back page of Uncut magazine this month and you oh. you talk about... Did I talk about... Oh, I did? I haven't seen that yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's true. I did. It's true. It happened. And you, you, your, your name is on the front cover as well, down the bottom there, underneath Bonnie Prince Billy. Nice. under Bonnie Prince Billy and above Reckless Eric. Cool. Mm-hmm. Bell and Sebastian the Edwards. Cool. That's cool. That's cool. And a print version. I like that. I'm glad there's a print version. Um, did you record... The ELO record on GarageBand. I did, yes. I did all of my 
stuff on GarageBand, which was, you know, all vocals, guitar, keyboards. And then the drums were recorded somewhere else and the bass was recorded somewhere else by my bass playing friend and my drumming friend. Homes well, one bass was done in his home studio, basement studio. The drums were done in a rehearsal space, recording into a laptop. Right. But the bass player had proper Pro Tools set up. Okay. I know for years you were really attached to this physical multi-track machine, weren't you? And um, yeah, it was digital eight track. I, want, I wondered if I'm rec right now. I'm recording into this thing. I don't know if you can see this. Um, that looks like a, a pretty much more complicated than what I had. But I have a Zoom drum machine, oh, which okay. I love. It's really great. I still use it. But yeah, this, um, this is like a 16 track and it's got a CD burner built into the side. I heard you describe oh, yeah. the thing that you used to record on. I thought that sounds quite similar I, to what I Yeah, mine was, mine was eight tracks and it was a little less fancy than yours looks. And it died. It died and that's why I stopped using it. I've been trying to keep this thing alive because I, I love it. Um, uh -huh. I did once buy an iMac and I tried to like, and I had Logic and I just basically never... I just got nowhere with, I just couldn't even, I didn't even get started really. I, tr I tried playing like a QWERTY keyboard as a keyboard and I straight away I had some kind of latency thing and I was just like, I can't. And I sold it and bought this thing and I've just used it. I've, it's got so much use over the years and I- uh, it, makes, it makes more sense to me in the faders and things. Like I, I, I finally learned GarageBand during the lockdown because I had always wanted to try like you tried. I'm like, I, ha I have to at least try to learn how to do this. But, and that was when my, you know, right after my A-Track machine had died. So I was like, I either, I'm either going to go on eBay and try to replace it with the same thing, or I'm just going to figure out how to do something in my laptop. And I, that's when I figured out GarageBand with a lot of help from a friend. And I, yeah, I hate it. I kind of hate it. I don't like, you know, I, I prefer being able to handle faders rather like none of the laptop doesn't make sense. Like the mouse or whatever you call it. Yeah. It's not even a mouse. It's the thing. I don't even know what you call it. I hate technology. I hate computers, but I'm doing it right now. Recording. I just still like a unit that you can just switch on and plug, plug into. Yeah. And you can stick what you can stick a microphone into it. When I first started to try to figure out GarageBand, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. And then I was like, where do I plug the microphone in? There's no hole on my laptop that's big enough. So I, I just asked my friend, where do I, how do I plug my microphone into the laptop? And he's like, oh, you have to get an interface. And I'm like, what's an interface? So then I had to, you know, then I had to figure all that out. I had no idea. Are you, are you writing for your next album at the moment or is it just? No, I'm writing. Yeah, I'm re I've started recording. Yeah. Do you do things to try and disrupt your writing process do you try different techniques of, of writing or do you do anything to to mess with a process or are you quite happy just using the method that's always worked for you well i think that i've been trying to disrupt my process by making these covers albums i think i've been trying partly to find new by by recording other people's music deeply i think i've been trying to shake myself out of my own songwriting habits but it's not really working i keep going back 
to my habits. But having said that, I am trying with this new album to do something differently. As I, Usually when I write, I have an acoustic guitar and I'm building melodies as I'm building the chord progressions. And I do it all so that I, I end up with the whole song I can play and sing before I start recording. But this time I'm laying down drum beats and I'm figuring out chords and structures first. And I'm not letting myself come up with melodies or words yet. So for me, that's a little bit of a disruption, just getting full music down, at least chords and a beat. And then, and maybe some other, maybe some, I'll add some keyboards or bass along the way. And then later getting into the lyrics and melodies. So I'm going to see if that does anything, changes yeah. anything. Yeah. Like letting the music lead the subject matter or letting the music somehow infuse the words with some kind of emotion that the music is transmitting, maybe. Um, I noticed, I think on your last album, nine out of ten songs are in the first person. I think they, I think nine, nine of the songs use the term I. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, how do you... I know you're so used to writing and putting stuff out in the world now, but do you worry about being interpreted a certain way or that people don't understand that just because something's in the first person, it doesn't necessarily mean it's you talking? Or how, how do you kind of reconcile all that? Well, I sometimes worry about it in this modern age because when when you think about social media or just the way that information gets around in general, there's no time for any context, you know? So people might hear a song like Chunks or like Had a Dream in which I'm saying, you know, I, I stabbed you in the neck. Wait, I just put the whatever. Whatever. It's like talking about I'm stabbing someone in the neck. Or, you know, like um, whipping someone or, or hitting with a baseball bat. And I'm like, that. that's obviously not meant to be taken literally. I'm not a violent person. I'm, I'm, I hate violence, actually. So, yeah. I Or there's a song called Short Fingered Man. I don't know if you've heard it. It's from a Pussycat album. And it's like, it's all metaphorical. But I had a couple comments that were taking the sexual ideas in it, in it literally. So in that way, I worry that maybe without any context, that stuff will be taken literally and it shouldn't be, but it's kind of obvious. So my, my extreme songs, like the songs with violence are so over the top that they're, I think they're funny. And if, and if someone else doesn't recognize that, then that's their, their own problem or their own, stupidity you know what i mean so i i don't know if i answered the question but and um i think that anyone who listens to music enough should understand that you know songs are it's an art it's an it's an expression um it's a really uh wide-ranging kind of expression you can say a lot 
um, with a song and with few words, you can say a whole lot. And that's what I love about it. I mean, I use a lot of words sometimes, but, um, and when I say I, I'm not always necessarily, I doesn't always necessarily mean me. And sometimes when I say you or her or him, I'm talking about myself. So there's a lot of ways to interpret songs and, um, the, the modern ways that people are using to communicate and to to consume information and music, they're not really the best ways, I think, to get understanding and comprehension always because people, everything happens so quickly and there's not enough time for contemplation, maybe. Yeah. I love... I don't... I gen- sorry, one more thing. In yeah. general, I don't really worry too much because my audience... It's not big enough that I'm going to get into any trouble. You know, I think that if anyone takes offense to any of my, any of the metaphorical violence in a few of my songs, it's not really going to hurt me in any way. Like my career is not going to be ruined. I'm not, my reputation is, I think I'm just kind of bulletproof in terms of reputation because no one really is paying attention to me. I can do it or I can do and say whatever I want and no one cares. I can, I can get, or I can't get arrested. That's how I feel. I can do whatever I want creatively at this point i'm fascinated by the song gorgon it's got a great lyric you must have interpreted it wrong because i don't sing love songs It's got this kind of meta thing that you're so vain has where, you know, a mm-hmm. person has misunderstood a situation or has elevated themselves further than they should have done. But then by now writing that song, you are almost elevating them to that. <laughs> so they now do yeah. have they now do have a song about them. But then equally right. you're questioning the narrator of that song. And it's like, are they even telling the truth about how they feel? And right. It's a really, it's a really interesting technique, and it, it's sort of mind-bending if you start to sort of <laughs> try and pick that song apart. Um, and right. I wondered how you felt about that song, and you're like writing it, and was it difficult? And yeah, I, I don't really know what a question is, but I just wanted to talk about a song really. I love that you're seeing all those sides to it. Cause I think that's what I wanted. Um, and yeah, I actually heard, I, I make it, I usually try not to read the comments anywhere, but once in a while I'll take a peek and I did have, I heard a reaction from someone to that song. He was as a fan, he was saying that, like, he felt kind of hurt by it somehow that, that I was telling my fans that you just don't get it. You don't get what I'm trying to say. Like, he, so, um, but yeah, in the song, I think that, um, I, I write a lot about my place in the industry or my lack of a lack of belonging in the music industry. And I, you know, I have my whole, I hate, I have this album called bed, which is my, I hate the, record industry album it's all about when i 
was dropped from Atlantic Records and how the business chews you up and spits you out. And I have a song called Sellout and how it's like, it's not a sellout if nobody buys it. I write about a lot, a lot about just trying to exist in this, this place between art and commerce, two things that just can't be reconciled by me. And, and I guess that Gorgon kind of falls into that a little bit. It's like wanting, I never wanted to be, I don't like to be pigeonholed. I don't like to be, explain to myself you know sometimes people have in- interpretations of songs that are, are so smug and they think they know exactly what i'm saying but how can that be true when half the time i don't really know what i'm trying to say until i've said it you know i use songwriting to try to understand complicated things in my head and my heart so gorgon is like i guess i'm trying to be like don't think don't assume that you know me I don't want to be known. Um, don't make assumptions. I guess that's a big thing. I don't like to, I try not to make assumptions and I don't want people to make assumptions. Do you feel like you really don't want to be known? Or is that, do you think that's like a defense? It's both. It's both. You're so smart. You, you understand things. Um, I, it's both, you know, in my personal life, in my public life, such as it is, I, I like a lot of boundaries. I, I'm a, I don't, you know, I'm afraid of being known too well just because of the, you know, we all have vulnerabilities and weaknesses and I don't really want to share those with anyone, no matter how close I am to that, to those people. And it's just, you know, maybe that's a, fa- a failing of mine, but I, I'm always trying to protect myself. But in my music, I have I have exposed a lot of really um, honest, deep uh, feelings and thoughts and ideas, things that I don't normally communicate to anyone in my day to day life or my personal life. And and so, I'm I guess I'm just very I ca- I'm full of contradictions. I want to express. Um, complicated, ugly things, things that I'm not proud of, but I also want to hide them to protect myself. So it's hard to make sense of it all. And I use music to try to, I'm still trying to work through this all. So it doesn't make sense. It must be, it feels like you're in a really frustrating position, like on two fronts, because on, on one hand, you, I notice you're, constantly self-deprecating about your your popularity as a musician your standing etc um but then you you were for a while major label and you kind of had that and hated it you said you felt i think you, you said i had you say you felt complicit in My your own exploitation, exploitation. And and so you yeah. you kind of had that, and it was a disaster, both for you and it tangibly went wrong as well. And so now there's that thing of want like wanting the success, so you can keep doing what you're doing and feeling like it's reaching people and is meaningful and isn't a tree falling in a forest. But then, but then the alternative of of having <laughs> that moment is 
is also a nightmare. So where, where, where's the best place to be? And so, and just, and then on the other hand, creatively, you've, you're desperate for privacy and boundaries, but you're creating something that's coming from you and trying to express how you feel, but also hating the fact that that might be out there and understood. And so just on those two fronts, it must be constantly like exhausting and yeah that's I, that's that's what it's like to be me it's exhausting i can't i contradict myself all the time and i can't resolve it all and um um yeah i guess part of why i do gripe about um i don't know i do i still think about like why did i i have I'm constantly going back and forth between I'm so grateful to have such wonderful fans and I'm able to make a living making me the music I want to make without any compromise, you know? And, um, but then I also think like, why don't I have, why did I not, why do I not have more recognition and more tangible rewards for all the work I've done? So I go back and forth between those. And I think, I guess it comes down to, you know, Maybe I could have been more commercially successful if I had um, tried harder, you know, but I stepped away from it because I didn't like, I didn't like that world of trying uh, to, um, you know, sell my music. And what was I going to say? I just thought, uh, it just left my head. Something like... um, Sorry, give me a second. I'm trying to think of this other thing I wanted to say. Um, oh, yeah. I also feel like there was, when I was signed to Atlantic Records in the 90s, early 90s, I do feel like there were, there were these expectations that I was going to make more of a mark. I was going to be more popular, more successful. And though I thought I was being successful. I thought it was, I was so happy I was hearing my song on the radio, um, which was totally surprising to me. Cause it was a weird song with no chorus, the song, my sister. Yeah. Um, um, I wasn't trying to write a hit single when I wrote it. And that was the song that was getting on the airplay and the video play. So I was like, this is great. You know, my song's getting out there. People are hearing it and they're liking it. That's the ultimate. That's great. But, um, oh my God, I keep losing the thought that I'm, the point that I'm trying to make. Um, it was important. Um, oh yeah. So people thought, I think that people around me, the label, everyone involved in the business, the, all the label people, publicists, other people, um, band, I don't know. They all, I think they were all a bit disappointed in how I did commercially. So I have a chip on my shoulder about that, that I feel like why wasn't, it's just the age old, you know, problem trying, trying to resolve art and commerce and why I, I guess I, what I wanted when I stepped away from the major label system was I wanted again to have success but on my own terms i always wanted success on my own terms i didn't want to compromise i didn't want to have to have some cartoonish image 
that I had to present, that I had to put on, I had to wear and present to people. I didn't want to smile for the cameras. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I just wanted to make my music and have it be lo- accepted, understood, and loved by people. Yeah. Um, I was naive. I've, I was naive, of course, but it happens for some people. Some people get lucky. They just do their music. They wear their schlebby clothes. They have their bad attitudes, and the world loves them. Um, it didn't exactly happen that way for me. So I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like, why wasn't it? Why isn't it? And wasn't it enough for me just to make my music? Um, but I have to keep keep saying that I'm so grateful for all the fans that I have still and always had, and my place in the world. I get to do whatever I can do, whatever I want, including making an album all ELO songs and that's a great position to be in yeah I read um that when you were struggling with depression and you cancelled a tour that I gather it was the label wanted a kind of different explanation given yeah all I all I was all I knew was I, I was in a bad um way I was it was a bad depression, like like I had never experienced before, and it was kind of debilitating. Yeah. Um, you know, though, I don't think they they don't care. They want you out there on the road. They want they want you to um, capitalize on your, your. You know, I'm on the heel. I was on the heels of my most successful record, and you gotta like keep that train moving. And when I canceled the tour, everyone was like, "This is gonna end your career. This is a really bad move." You can't do this. Um, but I felt like I had no choice. I, I had I had to do it. Maybe part of it was me trying to step off the train and putting a stop to it. I think that ultimately, like, I think that's, I mean, I was seriously depressed. That was not a lie. But I think the depression was a signal from my psyche telling me, you're not cut out for this. Um, you know, industry, or you can't, you can't compete at this level. You just don't have what it takes. You can make your music, but you can't really promote it like the major label system needs you to and wants you to. Yeah. So, yeah, that happened, and people were mad. Like people, people were upset when I canceled the tour. Um, you know, there I understand people wanted to get paid and and. Um, the label was not happy and you know the only person who really understood and had my, my manager who was my friend and my band they understood and they were all yeah. they were they were cool about it everyone was very disappointed though and they said it well yeah the line was nervous quote unquote nervous exhaustion whatever yeah. that meant i didn't tell them to say that but that's what they decided to tell people that doesn't even that's that's a term that has no meaning. I think it's a publicist term. Nervous exhaustion. It's odd because I'm um, I'm riddled with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, mm-hmm. and that's obviously like a, you know, ridiculously misunderstood. And you have the whole people say we're a bit OCD, and it's like, how can you be a little bit obsessive? It doesn't make sense. And, right. And of course, like, I think where we are now, your situation would be handled a lot differently because yeah there's such a much but on the on the flip side of that do you ever feel like 
there's such a conversation around mental health now that everyone is armed with this language <laughs> and it yeah. can kind of almost water down things for the people that are maybe really struggling <laughs> does that does that make yeah. sense yeah it does i think it's with with anything with everything today there's there's so much chatter you know there's so many places um people are talking about things all day long and all night long and and in a way that kind of diminishes um the intensity of the reality that people are living if it you know if you can um if there's like certain words that people certain language that everyone's using um as like boilerplate for a whole lot for a whole range of um levels you know that kind of diminishes the the reality that that every person is dealing with i think and you know it's like everyone's on their computers and their devices and it's just like type 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 chat 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 talk 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 everything just blows by in a second on to the next thing and it really there is kind of um there, there's a tendency to um yeah like you said to just kind of not really um consider the the depth of the um range of I don't, I don't know how to say it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or the different, the different, the uh, uniqueness of everyone's experience. Yeah, it can be diminished by the boilerplate language for things these days. Or the there's a lot of um, conformity in language these days. Conformity of terms, ter conformity of terminology. And I think that it can really um, lost my train of thought. Sorry. That's all right. I'm not the greatest with language sometimes. Sometimes I just can't find the words. That's why I write songs. That's right. <laughs> you, you beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go on tour with X, who I know like are abandoning a lot to you. Um, yeah, what was it? What what was it like for you to almost step, be able to step through the looking glass in that way, and to just have a band that meant so much to you when you're 16, and then to be on tour with them? Not many people, not many people get to have an experience like that. Do you do you recommend having an experience like that? Or yes, yeah. I mean, with those people, yeah. I mean, I I had gotten to know John Doe before that tour happened so he I considered him a friend at that point and he's a great guy you know and I and so he was not it was not disappointing at all to hang out with him and to get to know him um and yeah DJ was great Billy Zoom's a little I didn't get to know him too well he's 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 kind of an odd duck I guess I didn't really get to know him and Xena was so I was kind of um starstruck and intimidated she's not she's not like the easiest person to um you know she's like that's what I liked about her is that she's not gonna pretend 
to be your friend for no reason. She's just kind of matter of fact, and I love that about her. And I was at first, I was a little intimidated, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. So I, yeah, there were not nights on that tour when I would just be like, "Oh, now I can die. This is this is the best playing." You know, being even considered by them as an opening act, and then to actually be invited was a dream come true because it's like it's an it's like a acknowledgement that what i do has value because they they're so good at what they do they have such great taste that if they want me to be involved with them then that's like an acknowledgement of my work or my create my artistic work so yeah, yeah that was the best yeah, it's the, that was really the best. Cause it was like they, it's like a full circle moment, you know. Like they meant they were so inspiring to me. Exine was so inspiring to me. Um, she made me realize like I could be my just like weird, scruffy self. I don't have to brush my hair, you know, and it's okay, you know. I can be, I can do my unique music and have my weird voice, and which is different. A different kind of weird than her voice, but it's unique, you know, and I'm not, I don't have to change myself. I can just be myself and that's okay. And she, she made that so true and it was very inspiring and inspirational to me. And then, yeah, so the, it was so great to play with them on the road. So great. I was also curious about what it's like to try and collaborate with Paul Westerberg because he feels almost like in a way like Bob Dylan where you feel like if you met him you wouldn't be able to have an ordinary conversation with him does, it, does, that, does that make sense yeah well well I met him a long time before we collaborated so and I considered him a very a close uh friend and but yeah I remember the first time or times that I met him I was just like oh my god I, I could my my head couldn't really my head was exploding, you know, like what I can't couldn't even believe it that I was in the same room as this person. It's just like my head couldn't really I couldn't get my head around it. It was too um but you know, gradually I came to know him and I realized like okay, he's just he's a person. Okay. Um he is actually a human being, but a very complicated one. Um which you can kind of gather from listening to his music that he might be a complicated person yeah. um so it was a complicated relationship and but that's i guess that's the kind i'm interested in so i get bored easily and then but even still after having known him for decades when when we collaborated there were moments when we were in his home basement studio working on the i don't care's record when i would look over at him and I'd, I'd think like, oh, my, my teenage head would be exploding if I, if it had known that I would be in this basement with Paul Westerberg recording music together with him. And, you know, cause it was when I was a teenager, he was, I was in love with him. You know, it's never really, it never really um, goes away. That starstruck feeling, it's always there. But as you get to know someone, who was an idol? You real you do realize like you can separate, you can separate the musical entity from 
the person. But it's always weird because the musical entity always is there in the room with you and the person. Because the musical persona, I think, I believe that the musical persona is like a separate entity it's, that exists outside of the human being. And I feel that about myself. I feel when I listen to my music, I think, like, wow, that's the best part of me. That's like, that's a different, that's not me. That's something that came from me, but it's not me. And then I'm just this like loser, you know, with this insecure loser. And then there's my musical persona, which is like the better part of me. If that if that makes sense. I I know having yeah, like on the podcast, even having you know got to speak to like Stuart Copeland and Genesis and things, and I'm very careful because I don't ever want to feel like I'm elevating a person it's like it's, right. it's, it's the art it's the art that's special yeah you can you can you know um acknowledge and understand the the really high value of the work you know yeah. and but the people are people yeah. and I think they want to be treated like people they you know they feel they feel weird awkward un- and uncomfortable if they have interactions in which the other person is freaking out, you know, that's, that's weird. Yeah. If a fan is freaking out, i sees you on the street or anywhere. And is like, Oh, my God, oh you know, just like be cool. And they'll be cool. Yeah. Usually. Are you playing show soon? There's just a couple of things coming up, but there's no, um, there's no big tour right now. Yeah. We might be doing something in the spring of, like a 31st anniversary of Become What You Are with Dean and Todd <laughs> or 32nd, something like a weird number. Yeah. Um, I think that's in the works for next spring. Not sure exactly where yet. Okay. I should let you go. Have you been, um, have you been happy with this? Yeah, I think it's been great. Okay. I think it's been good. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for inviting me. that's our show thanks as always to our guests whose opinions of her own thanks also this week to monica hopman find me on instagram at sending signals podcast and on x at signals podcast see you soon